We are coming into uh, chapter 8 of our book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. Uh, I feel like we've kind of gotten, as of last week, gotten into a part 2 of, of the book. Things have shifted a little bit. Um, let me give you a quick recap and then we'll pray and we will uh, get into this week's chapter. So you might remember where we have come from. He's, he's introduced now to us um, after talking this whole time about the notion, that, biblically, that we're called to be instruments in uh, in one another's lives, instruments of God's change, uh, even as we are uh, people in need of that change as well. Um, he has now introduced to us these it says four ways to function as God's instruments of change, and this is going to uh, outline what's, what we're in right now and what, where we're going to go for the next several weeks. Uh, you remember these four, uh, love, know, speak, and do. And we are still in the love um, element, the love, um, the, the love category. We were there last week and now, and now this week. Um, and he gave us four elements of love. We looked at the first two. James led us through those last week. And then we'll look at the third and fourth ones this morning. Uh, here are those elements of love that he's, uh, that he's holding out to us. Enter the person's world. Incarnate the love of Christ. We saw those last week. And now, identify with suffering and accept with agenda. Those are the two on this, on chapter 8. Accept with agenda comes on the second to last page of the chapter. So really, the whole chapter is about the third one, essentially. And that's why uh, the title of, of the chapter is Building Relationships by Identifying with Suffering. Um, now, I didn't, I didn't do a good job of thinking through whenever I assigned these. I'm not the, the person that should be leading us through uh, identifying with suffering if we want to actually get through this, but I think, I think we'll do well. He has some, he, this, is a, this is a wonderful chapter, uh, and he gives some, some illustrations that are very powerful that I'm just not going to read to you. We'll spare you of that, but if you have the, chat, the book or you want to get it, some of, those, uh, some of those stories that he shares are really very memorable of some things that he has walked through uh, with other people. Before we move on, though, let's, let's stop and pray and ask the Lord to guard us and bless our time. Father, we, we do just that. We, we thank you for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for our health. We thank you for the safety and the freedom that, we, uh, that we're operating under this morning. Lord, we pray for those uh, not with us and those in our midst who are, who are suffering and are struggling with, uh, with a great number of, of potential uh, needs. We pray that they would find comfort this morning, that they would find encouragement and fellowship. And Lord, as we go through this chapter, please help us and thank you for helping us by bringing us to this, uh, to, uh, uh, to grow in our, in our own individual senses of, of where you have called us uh, to love the people around us. Uh, thank you for the tools that you are giving us to be able to do that better. We all sense our, uh, our inadequacies and in, especially in areas like this, and um, and yet we we recognize your call to us uh, that that um, as we go through life together and we are comforted by one another, you are comforting us, and this is an honor that you allow us to to take part in. And we thank you, Lord. Uh, help us, sharpen us as a result of our time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, all right, number three, identify with suffering. Let me start with, a, with, with something that he says here. See if you don't agree with this. Uh, he says, 
We live in a world where suffering is common. In a fallen world populated by sinners, we should not be surprised. We should be surprised that we do not suffer more. Yet we don't often see it that way. We tend to be shocked when we hear stories. And he goes into a few there. And then he says, more importantly, we struggle with how to relate to people who have suffered. But sooner or later, we will suffer too. That's why a chapter like this is so uh, important, because the, uh, the situations it's bringing to our attention are completely inevitable to us. We will live, we constantly live, around others that God has put in our sphere that are suffering. And we find ourselves having a hard time, especially as we, uh, well, for a number of reasons, um, knowing how to be God's love to them, knowing how to step toward them. Um, And even as we have those struggles, we know that we are experiencing suffering and that suffering will be inevitable for us going forward. You can't escape it. This is going to be, uh, these are going to be matters that we're going to have to deal with and that people are dealing with around us all the time. Um, But he emphasizes quite a bit in this chapter that we, uh, it's Zach. Good morning, brother. (laughs) Uh, He emphasizes a lot, and I appreciate it. I'm so so painfully aware of how difficult this can be for me that we find it very difficult to step into situations where there is suffering. It's hard to know what to say. It's hard to know what to what role to, to try to play? Am I overstepping? Is, did I say the wrong thing? Oh, why did I say that? Uh, am I the only one in here that has felt those sorts of just, just cringe? Can't stop thinking about it for days after. Um, and yet that is exactly what we're being called to. Uh, we, are, uh, we are needed when those that God has put around us, when they are suffering, we are needed. Uh, we know that suffering is a big word, that takes on a whole lot of faces, right? I put a list together here. I'm curious what, what I missed. What do you think we should add to this list? Suffering can take the form of fear, pain, physical pain, emotional pain, grief, worry, regret. It's a special kind of pain. What do you think I'm missing up here? What would you add to that? Hunger? Hunger? Loneliness? Goodness. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And some of these things, they, they so belong on a separate bullet point by themselves because of the unique way that they take two or three of these together and represent them. They, they are... There is pain in that, there is regret in that, but in a very unique and special and and suffering-producing sort of way. Humiliation, yeah, yeah, yeah. These are difficult situations to be in, the difficult situations to step into, and it seems to me that each of them are difficult to step into in their own ways sometimes. Um, And for all of those reasons, I was increasingly grateful for the chapter that we're going through as I was reading through it and preparing. But I just, I, I, sometimes I'm more aware than others of places where I just, I need wisdom. I need to, I need to sit 
under somebody and just listen to them and learn and hear their experiences. Um, and this is, this is certainly one of those places. So I've been very uh, thankful for the chapter. Um, we'll, we'll start off here by just thinking together about some things that the Bible says to us about suffering itself. So we have a good, a good framework for what it is that we're talking about. Uh, the Bible says a lot to us about suffering. Uh, I've got five things up here that, uh, I, that I've taken from the chapter. Uh, Tripp has five things that, uh, that the Bible says about suffering. Uh, let's go through these, and, and let's, I hope that we see each of these and we nod our heads. Yes, that is what the Bible says about suffering. Uh, here's the first one. God is sovereign over suffering. Suffering is not evidence of chaos or of a lack of, of, of control or power by God. If you've been in our adult Sunday school class this year, you know we went through a whole section that really highlighted that. In fact, right before this book, leading up to this book. The reality of sin and suffering, but, the, but especially the reality that God's sovereignty exists over all of those situations. Um, here's another thing that the Bible says indirectly about suffering. God is good. God is good all the time. All the time, God is good. Number three, uh, this is sort of putting those two together. God has a purpose for our suffering. And we could even put in the word, they're good. God has a good purpose for our suffering. So like we said, suffering is not a sign of, um, of something happening that has no meaning behind it. That's one of the biggest threats to us, the biggest temptations, I think, in times of deep suffering, is this profound sense that there is no, there is no reason this is happening. I can't imagine any possible reason that there could be for this to be going on. It's, hap- it's hurting so badly, and it's not doing anything. It's only taking away. It's not producing anything. Um, but if we understand God's hand in our lives, uh, that, uh, that the Bible clearly points, uh, points us to, we have something to fight against those sorts of temptations, and we can respond, we can talk back to them and argue with ourselves and say, no, uh, that, that may be how this feels, but I, I know that... My feelings do not understand the whole extent of the city. And the Bible does, and it makes clear to me that there is a purpose for this. I don't have a clue what it is right now, but there is a purpose. And the one who purposed it knows everything, and he is good all the time. Uh, Number four, the Bible explains the ultimate reasons why we suffer. Um, And again, here's another, another list. There's a few numbered lists in this chapter, but uh, they're all good ones. Here's a list of what he identifies from Scripture as to the sources of our suffering. Why is it that we suffer? Well, we suffer because, can you see that? We suffer because we live in a fallen world. And so we, have, uh, we are plagued by things as a result of living in a fallen world. This was a great list of examples, I, I thought. He, he says, uh, uh, we live in a fallen world plagued by, and then he just gives gives some, uh, some examples to show the breadth of, of how this affects us. He says, plagued by disease, natural disasters, dangerous animals, broken machinery, etc. Now, I've never heard those things put together as an example of how. But isn't that great? Dangerous animals. Some random mauling in the, in the woods. Well, there's, we have dangerous animals around us because the world is broken now. Um, broken machinery. How much of my 
I mean, talk about first world problems. I mean, our frustrations that, and, and inconveniences when your computer breaks down or something fails and you lose, a, that's a, that could be a, a very, depending on the situation, that could be legitimate suffering, I guess. Um, I just thought it was neat the, way, the, the places he went. We expect disease, natural disasters, those are very true. Dangerous animals, broken machinery. Uh, the fallen world is a place where we suffer. That's what this place is. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's probably safe to say, I can imagine. You suddenly hear those shouts from the other room and you think, oh no, it happened again. <laughs> if David Vessel were here this morning, he could share some stories with us, I imagine, of people suffering as he tries to help them with their broken machinery. Um, the second one he's got on the list is the flesh. We suffer, we don't just suffer because the world around us has fallen, we suffer because of our sinful flesh. Uh, much of our, would you agree with this, that much of your suffering, not all your suffering, not at all, but much of your suffering has come at your own hands. I think we can all, we can all admit that. Um, especially some of the things on that list, the worry or regret, things like that, those are, those are sometimes some of the most painful sufferings, and it's because of something I decided would be a good idea to do in the past. No one made that decision for me. Why was I thinking that way? Why were my priorities like they were? Why would, that's, that's me, and that produces suffering. Uh, we suffer legitimately, thirdly, because of other people. Other people sin against us. And he says, he says from subtle prejudice to personal attacks, we all suffer at the hands of others. That's legitimate suffering, too. We suffer because of the devil. It's the fourth one. I hope we're not a people, uh, I hope we're not some of those, the many today that have forgotten that there really is a real enemy in the world uh, who the Bible describes as a trickster and a liar who operates through dividing and destroying and devouring. This is language that the Bible uses concerning Our enemy and God's enemy, Satan. He is there and he is at work. And there are consequences of that. Um, All of these, I'm going to put, I saved the fifth one for a special click because it applies to them all. The Bible also makes clear that um, we suffer because of God's good purpose. Not a single ounce of suffering has ever come to any of his children. We're thinking of, of believers here. There is no suffering any of us have ever experienced that did not have to filter through the approval of God. He approved the suffering before it got to us, and he approved it because he has intentions in mind. And even that is, that's kind of faulty language. That sounds like it was someone else's idea, and he thought, oh, I could do something with this. No, 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 no. All things are, are from God. And so when we suffer, uh, that is from him as well, and it is, uh, it's in accordance with his purpose. But specifically, and this is something we'll talk about here in a few minutes, there's this reality in Scripture that God calls his children to suffer uh, not just for his glory, but also for their redemptive good. The fact that our lives include regular moments of of enduring suffering, this is is an important part of what God is doing in working his redemption out in our lives. There's some places we'll go to here in a few minutes that really emphasize that. Um, 
coming back to this list of now five, the, the fifth thing that the Bible says about suffering is uh, sort of in the negative. The Bible is clear that God's sovereignty over our suffering never, this is so important, uh, never means that our suffering is not real. And it never excuses the primary means through which those things happen. You remember when Jesus said, I forget now, I didn't, uh, but he says, um, uh, it, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks will come, but woe to the man through whom they come. It would be better for him, you know. Um, the, the, the instrument of evil is never excused simply because of the reality that none of this is happening outside of God's, God's sovereignty. So these are really helpful things to, for us to say to, to ourselves before we start to go on in, in the chapter, to just remind ourselves of how much the Bible really has spoken to about our suffering, where it comes from, uh, what sorts of forms it takes, uh, the, the plan of God in it. Um, now, last week, when we started talking about this element of love, right? We're still in that this morning, love. Uh, James led us through the first couple. Let me just remind you of some of the things there. Uh, and I don't have these on the slides. The, number one was enter the person's world. You remember that? And we said that when there is suffering, we need to step toward our brothers and sisters in the church and not away. We need to listen so that, and, and listen in a way that when they leave, when they walk away, they are able to say, well, she really heard me. I like that. I want more of that. This was some of the, the thoughts that, that he was putting there. Um, and then the second one, that was so into the person's world was number one. Number two was incarnate the love of Christ. And we had a lot of, of discussions at the end of the time, too, about what does that really, what does that mean to incarnate the, the love of Christ? Um, and he pointed in the chapters to Colossians 3.12, which says, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Now, that's a list of, of qualities that, that, are, that aren't yet in, they will have application in the speak part, right? We have love, oh, I'm getting get them out of order now. What were they? Love, know, speak, do. So the third one's going to be speak. We will need to speak with humility and compassion. But right now we're thinking of those things in, simply, not in terms of speaking, but in terms of incarnating Christ's love to someone. That I'm coming with a certain heart of gentleness and compassion and patience and kindness. Um, and I think it's going to be increasingly important for us as we keep going to remember the order that he's laid these things out for us. There is a proper order for how we, how we think about our role in these things. Um, the third element is where we come to this morning. Identify with suffering. Here we go. Is this up here? No. Okay. So let me just read this to you. Um, this is something from the chapter. He says, he's talking about the times in your life when you have been the one suffering. Right? Have you ever felt as if you were two different people? The private sufferer and the person who is known by the people around you. Have you ever wanted to tell your story but were afraid of what others may think? And I think that applies especially in the kinds of suffering that we mentioned, like regret uh, or worry. I'm suffering, but I know that maybe in that case, I know it's because of me, and I don't want people to know what I did to, 
And so the end result is you suffer by yourself. Have you ever wanted to, oh, yeah. Have you ever wanted to tell your story but were afraid of what others may think? Have you ever wanted to exchange someone else's life for your own? Has your suffering ever diminished your desire for personal worship or the teaching of God's word or the fellowship of the body of Christ? Have you ever wished that you didn't have to get up in the morning because of the difficulty you had to face? It's a series of yes-no questions. And he says, if you are alive, you answered yes to at least a few of these questions. You are a sufferer. But then he finishes that sentence. He says, you are a sufferer who has been called by God to minister to others in pain. Which makes me think of the subtitle of our book, right? People in need of change, helping people in need of change. He does not call us to wait until our suffering is over, until we've figured things out, to then turn with our, with our master's degree in personal experience and begin to help other people now that we've gotten it. He calls people who he is leading through suffering to turn and help others who are in need of change. And there, apparently there's something about how he's designed this that this produces the image of, of Christ in his church as, as people are selflessly loving, they're exercising humility. Uh, let's look at a couple of, of passages in Scripture now to, to, see, to see some of what he is talking about uh, put, put on display. Boy, these are just, these are just great, uh, these, these two passages. The first one's in Hebrews chapter 2. That was what I already put up there on accident. Uh, we'll just read verses 10 through 12, and I'm going to have it up on the screen too. In fact, let me go ahead and do that. Yeah. Um, notice as we read this, the language of identification that we're seeing here. There is a real emphasis here on God relating to us in Christ. So here's what he says, Hebrews 2, 10 through 12. says, In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. This is not the ESV. It's what he, I'm pretty sure this is the NIV that he has up here. So there's one main difference that I noticed. Does this? Yes, yes. Uh, right here. Uh, those who are made holy are of the same family. What the, remind me what the ESV says there. It's different. Of one origin, yeah, yeah. So I, I checked that word. It does have a range of meaning that can include family, and I think, I mean, it, especially if you if you notice what happens next, it seems like that's what's being being spoken of here. Um, and this also protects us. When I hear they're of the same origin, that makes me think that all of them originated. And we're talking about Jesus and his brothers. That that could could bother uh, some people. That Jesus. When did he originate? You know, so this could avoid some of those issues, but it's, but it, I think it's, it works because this is the, this is the basis on which he says, "So, Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers." So this, this is speaking of our unity together, belonging to each other. Um, 
and there are several things that we, we can take out of this. I'm going to put them on the side here. Uh, one that's clear is that this means that the Savior that we serve is a suffering Savior. He's the one that's being spoken of earlier on when it says um, that God's plan was to make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Speaking of the Lord Jesus in his capacity as the Christ. Now, we won't spend much time with this. He does go into it in the chapter, but um, there's some of that language used sometimes of Christ being made perfect through suffering. And we just, we just need to understand, obviously, it's not speaking of someone who is sinful, anything like that. Christ is the God-man, right? Uh, Christ has come. When we say the word Christ, we're speaking of the, of the capacity of the God-man as our Redeemer. And as God, he never needed perfecting at all, but as Man, when he was born, uh, he was not yet, as a human, qualified to be our human representative. He had to live a life of, of sinless obedience. He had to endure temptation, like Adam did, but stay faithful where Adam failed. He had to do all of these things, right? Uh, and the way that, that Hebrews 2 here is painting all of that is with the word suffering. It was through suffering that he, that he finished the race that he was called to finish. And the idea here is going to be that that's what this family is like. And as we're brought into this family, this is, what things, this is how things become for us now. This is what God's doing in us. We too are being sanctified uh, through the suffering experiences that we have. But it's clear that, that Jesus is our suffering Savior. Uh, and there's so much... Uh, isn't this what Hebrews will go on to say? That there, the point of that is, for us, is that that means there is sympathy for us in our high priest. We don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He was tempted as we are. He suffered as we suffer. His suffering far exceeds the suffering that we, that we have suffered. And he's the one who's calling us to follow. He's the one who's equipping us. Uh, that's really helpful for me to, to, to have firmly convinced in my mind that the one I'm being told to follow it was himself a suffering uh, Savior. And Tripp goes on and says, uh, we are with Christ in the family of those who suffer. We are, we are brothers within that family. Now that does hold up Jesus, at, like we just said, as sympathetic to us. But it does even more than that. To, to hear him, uh, this is amazing what he says at the end, I will declare your name to my brothers. Jesus is saying that to the Father. He's, he's speaking of you and me, and he's calling us his siblings. Um, and, and Tripp says, as we think of how that works out between ourselves, that means that we ourselves are brothers and sisters with each other. We are, uh, there is an equal relationship on this path that we're all walking. And that's really profound in terms of the implications on how we regard ourselves with each other. So Tripp says... He says, I am not anyone's guru. Change will not happen simply because someone is exposed to my wisdom and experience. We share identity. We share experience. And we are of the same family. Now we know what it's like to try to talk with someone who doesn't have that point of view. And who who clearly doesn't see themselves as the same as you. As, as living in the same place and, and, and having to, to endure through suffering and having memories of their own failures, uh, 
You talk to someone who's here talking to you, and it sounds and feels very different than someone who knows, I am your brother in this. I want to be useful and encouraging and helping you, but we are, we are brothers and sisters as we're going through all of this. Uh, the second pas- this one's, the next passage is a little bit longer. Second uh, Corinthians chapter one. This will be on the screen also, but I'm going to have it up there in two pieces because it's kind of big. So we'll look at verses three through seven first. I don't know that I had ever seen this passage like this, like he like he presents it. Um, he pointed out some things in this chapter that I'm never going to forget about this, and that I, I think is exactly right. Um, and really helpful in what we're talking about. So, uh, verses 3 through 7, what we have here really is a model that God is giving us through the Apostle Paul um, in terms of modeling how we are to think of suffering. All right? So, 3 through 7 is going to just talk about, almost talk about suffering in the abstract. What, what really is it? What's going on? And then, verses 8 through 11, uh, Paul is going to start talking about himself and his own suffering, and he's going to give us sort of a case study example of how we can uh, encourage others biblically by keeping these things in mind. It's, it's really almost as if Paul read this chapter and then wrote verses 8 through 11 to give us an example. Like It, really, it, it almost feels that way to me, uh, which is just, just kind of cool. Um, first, though, we see this, this description of suffering and uh, we've not gone to this passage yet this morning. This is a passage, I think, that very much proves what we have said so far about, about how we are to think about suffering. All right, so 3 through 7, let me read this. If it's too small up there, you can look on yours. This is, I think this is the ESV. Uh, he sa- this is Paul. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. That is quite a sentence, but we'll go and look at that more closely. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. I mean, can you hear just exactly the sorts of realities that, that we've been talking about, about the relationship between suffering and comfort, God's intention in it, and the equality in it? Um, so what are some things that we have here? We'll put the, them on the side of the, s- the slide, too. Um, one is kind of how he starts, and that is that God is the source of true compassion. It says in verse 3 that he's the father of mercies and the God of all comfort. We read this in the chapter. Uh, the most valuable thing in my life is God's love, a love that no one can take away. This is the comfort we offer people. And uh, listen to this next part. I wonder if I'm the only one that hears this and goes, boy, I have colossally failed in the past in how I have tried to be a comfort. (laughs) 
He says, this is the comfort we offer people. We don't comfort them by saying that things will work out. They may not. The people around them may change, but they may not. The Bible tells us again and again that everything around us is in the process of being taken away. God and his love are all that remains as cultures and kingdoms rise and fall. Comfort is found by sinking our roots into the unseen reality of God's ever-faithful love. And those are some hard truths. We probably have to be wise in thinking about how we choose to say those things to people, the timing of things. But I'm going to get it wrong if I'm starting in my thinking, how, how can I really actually encourage and help? Not just make them feel better, but really be a help to them. If I'm not starting there, I'm, I'm in a pretty dangerous spot. Um, I've done a lot of putting my foot in my mouth throughout my few years. Um, but these sorts of, of, of clearly biblical perspectives can protect us from the beginning as we're thinking about how, what would, uh, how can I really... Encourage. Notice what, what he's pointing us to here. He's not pointing us to, to increasing someone's despair or sadness or worry. But he is pointing us to using those as times where we can, say to, where we can help people to see. You're suffering because this is a world where suffering happens. But we have access to a hope that goes far beyond uh, the things of this world. This world is passing away. The things we have, the relationships we have in this world they are going to be taken from us one at a time in this world. But our hope is supposed to go deeper than that uh, so that we become a people who are waiting on the Lord, hoping in Him, and therefore we have access to joy that cannot be destroyed as we lose the things that the Bible has told us we're going to lose. What do you think about that, about that quote? I know it's not on the screen, but any comments or thoughts jump out at you as, we, as I read that? God is the source of true compassion. Uh, Here's the second thing we see. God wants us to share in Christ's sufferings. Uh, The logic here really seems simple. You have been called to suffer so that you can experience God's comfort. He says in verse 4, He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction, with the comfort with which we are comforted by God. Uh, I have led you through affliction so that then I can turn and comfort you. And now your comfort that I've given you turns into an instrument in the hands of everybody around you in their lives. Uh, this is another passage that's, that's, that's related. First Peter 4, 12 and 13. Peter says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you, may, that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. What comes to us when His glory is revealed? Comfort comes to us. Endure the sufferings faithfully, knowing all the time that as you suffer, His appearance... And not just in the last day, but his appearance in the, in the form of your brothers and sisters who come to you. His appearance to you will be all the more comforting and encouraging. And this is his intent. Tripp says, uh, suffering does not mean that God's plan has failed. 
It is the plan. We suffer so that we may know him more deeply and appreciate his grace more fully. We suffer so that we may be part of the good he does in the lives of others. So here's a question that came to my mind at that point in the chapter. I'm thinking, okay, does, is that fair of God to do? We suffer so that we may know him more deeply. Is that? Well, who are we talking about as we talk about ourselves? These, these poor vessels of suffering. We suffer so that we may know him more deeply. Am, am I someone who does not deserve suffering? It would be unfair if that's the case. That's, I think that's what you just said, Blake. We, we, deserve, we always deserve much more than whatever it is that the Lord chooses to, to bring into our lives. You know, it makes us, it, it makes us uh, really decide if we actually believe what we say or not. We say, um, you know, we, we read Paul in Philippians and things and hear these people just saying, essentially saying, oh, I don't care what happens, I just, I want to know him more. And we say, amen, I want to know him more too. But then we're faced with this and we have to actually decide, is that really what I want most? Do I really see that knowing him is worth whatever? That it is better than anything else? And so whatever intentions and means he chooses to employ, I'm thankful for? Because all I, ever, all I wanted anyway was to know him. And now I'm learning that that's his intent in my suffering, is so that I might come to know him better as the Father of comfort and the God of all mercies. Um, do we believe what we, what we say? In the way he's created us and in the, in the, in the nature of what we've become in the fall. I mean, that, this is what answers the question. You'll, you'll hear the question or maybe you'll ask it like, okay, well, it, what, his intention is good, but he can, he's God. Couldn't he have done it in another way? Couldn't he do this? Couldn't he achieve the same ends through different means that, that didn't involve? So, and I... I I mean, as if we can answer that, as if we think we know what we're talking about trying to answer. But I, I, I am convinced that some part of the answer is simply that this is, this is the nature of how God has created this. There are things that we learn and things that we learn that we're able to kill in times of hardship and suffering that, that are unique. He could treat us as if we are robots and do things differently, but... This is, this is, as he is interacting with us and leading us as a father trains his children, there, there, there are necessities according to the plan he has, has put into place. Yeah. That's why it's so important that before we jump into case studies and specific examples of our situations, we stop and go back like we did at the start of this and say, what has the Bible told us about suffering? Why is it here at all? Where does it come from? What are the reasons for it? What does God say he's doing in the midst of it? We have to think, this is, for the lack of a better word, we have to think in the abstract and get our, founda- our foundational principles down before we start talking about the last year for, in my life. We can't start there uh, or, and, and still think rightly about things. So tell me if this is if this is a good paraphrase of what you're saying that 
we must think of the whole conversation about suffering in the context of a God and his rebellious people. A God and his enemies and a God who has, who has freely chosen to put love and to redeem. But every second of it is taking place in the context of rebellion against God. And we could take those limitations in Scripture and get a sense of where we should, where we should think of our own limitations. I, I should be stopping about now in my logical program. I can wonder, but I'm not going to do any conclusion making outside of this place because I don't have the right to do that. And I'm not smart enough to do that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So this is so far here just thinking about, um, about what, what 2 Corinthians 1 here describes in terms of suffering and God's intent for me. Uh, but really, this passage is not even, it doesn't seem like that's the main point of this passage yet. I think we get the main point here in, of these, uh, in these next couple of, of takeaways. Um, number three, even our suffering does not belong to us. Uh, it belongs to the Lord. This is something that he, um, we can get pretty good at seeing this when we think about our blessings. God has blessed me. Um, and I know that's an example of his kindness, but I also know that he didn't just bless me uh, for me to do whatever I want with, with the blessings he's given me. Those still belong to him, so he expects me to use them in his service, right? We see that pretty easily when we talk about blessing. The point here is, that seems to be true about our sufferings, too. He has given me sufferings. He has intentions for them in my life, but um, those sufferings don't belong to me. They belong to the Lord. Now, we tend to treat our sufferings as something that belong to us. And what that means is, I really can respond as I please to these sufferings. I mean, it hurts. I'm hurting. And so how else would I respond to it? Instead of remembering that as real as that is, you have, we have to fight to keep in mind that these sufferings were given by God and he has intentions for us to use them in certain ways. And, and uh, in terms of first, uh, 2 Corinthians 1 here, what it says God's intention is for our suffering is ministry. The suffering he's given us leads to the comfort he gives us, and all of that is from the Lord with ministry in view. So what Tripp says about it is he says, I must not hoard the comfort I have received like some spiritual heirloom. We want sufferers around us to experience what we have been given by the Lord. And that's, that's, I don't just mean, and I don't think he means here in 2 Corinthians, comfort in terms of an end to the suffering. Is it comforting in the midst of suffering when, some, when, when the Lord gives you perspective on it that you didn't have the day before? Uh, when you suddenly hear from someone that the way you're going through that suffering has been a ministry to them, an inspiration to them, those are comforts of their own, right? Comfort is not simply the end of the suffering. And as the Lord gives us comforts along the way, even before he sets us free from the suffering, if he chooses to, those are things that we are supposed to think of, not just in terms of personal gifts from God, but these are things I'm supposed to share. Other people are going through these sufferings too, and they maybe haven't received these things yet, but God's given them to me. I can share this with them. And then they have received it too. And all of a sudden, 2 Corinthians 1 is happening. The comfort we are receiving... Uh, let me just read it again. Um, he comforts us in our affliction so that we can comfort 
others who are in afflictions with that same comfort that we were given. That is the intent there. That's the end goal. And all of this is supposed to be leading to a body of brothers and sisters, a family together, uh, that is characterized more and more by the word hope. The redemptive purpose in all of this is hope in a fallen world. God wants to raise up a people who are filled with hope. Not a people who are filled with comfort, physical comfort, not a people who are filled with, um, with health and wealth and prosperity. I just learned, I don't know where I've been, I just learned of a, of a church in Amarillo that is a complete Kenneth, Hague, uh, Kenneth Copeland um, health, wealth, prosperity. I was very upset to know that that was, I didn't even know that was here. But uh, some people are sitting this morning being told that God wants them and plans and expects for them to be comfortable and prosperous and free of suffering. It's the exact opposite of what we're claiming here. And one of the byproducts is when they go through suffering, they have nothing to offer anyone else but confusion. They don't know what in the world's going on except that they're being punished. But that's not what the Bible says our times of affliction are supposed to be for. We have real opportunities to fill others with hope as we go through affliction and God's comfort. So the paradigm that we have in this 2 Corinthians 1 goes like this. We suffer. We are, because the Lord is, is the God of all mercies, in many ways we are comforted by God as we suffer. And as we are comforted, that's supposed to mean others are comforted too because his comfort goes through us as, uh, as vessels to be at comfort to others and the result for everyone involved is hope. Um, so this is, this is, I was thinking about this and I, I made this little table that you can't see yet. And just in terms of application before we go on here. Um, I don't know if this will, I, I think that this works. This was helpful to me at least. Maybe it'll be helpful to somebody else. But um, I, I've, I've chosen to divide all of you up into two categories, young and old. All right? So you can decide which one you fit in. There's the, there's the, the, the top there, young and old. I think that there is that there's an application of this that especially uh, tends to fit us when we are in our younger years. And I think there's another one that especially fits us as we're in our older years. The lines are blurred. Um, If you think of yourself as an older individual here, the first still very much applies to you and vice versa. But I put it like this because it's generally true, right, that those who are older have suffered more. They have lived longer. They have, that's not true by any means, exhaustively, but as a general principle. Could we, could we say that? Um, just make that assumption as I put up the next couple here, these questions. But you'll see that they both apply to us. All right. So if you've got yourself in the young category, and by that we mean um, you have already dealt with suffering, but you know that you haven't dealt with as much suffering. You know there's... That, that, that your life has been, um, this stuff hasn't ramped up yet for you in ways it has for other people. Um, so here's a question, and I, this has been such a struggle for me, and um, I, I feel like I, I fall into this category. But I've found myself doing this before. We talked about this a couple weeks ago of um, when we don't trust God, his, his, his sovereignty actually stops being a comfort to us. It starts being a terrible threat to us. We start being afraid of it. You remember that? So um, this is the question 
that it led me to think about. Where have I said to God, God, you, you, this is all good, what you're doing in 2 Corinthians 1, what you tell us your plans are, but I'm just telling you that here and here, you may not do this in these places. You can lead me through suffering in any other place and teach me through it and comfort me and we'll be good, but you cannot do it here. If you do it here, we're going to have problems. Um, we do this, I think, in the more um, in the more desperate places. Um, <clears throat> I, I think of this when it comes to um, to our kids, to the well-being of, of our children. You know, um, we do it in terms of our own individual health. Maybe there's just there can be a great fear of things like chronic long-term suffering. Lord, teach me through my relationships. Teach me through a car accident that, that, that makes for a big insurance deductible. But don't teach me here. Uh, you, you're not allowed. Uh, how about life dreams or big goals or things like that? You, you can't take that from me, God. Um, we just have to think about those places when we, when we hear the reasoning of 2 Corinthians 1 and remember. Or just, I mean, what is this saying about me in those places as I stand right now? that that really is where I am. That says something about me, and I'm, I'm meant to notice it and to be grieved about it because it represents a lack of trust in God and a lack of belief that he really is good. I have to, those are hard. Um, do, do those in the older not have that? Of course, of course they do, of, you know. Uh, but I think by and large, that's something that we can... Uh, and you know what he'll do? He'll do well, anyway, I'm, we're about to run out of time. Old, here's the other. Um, so you're old, by which I mean uh, maybe, you're, maybe you're 26, maybe you're 95, but by which I mean the Lord has really brought you through a lot of difficulty. Um, decades of struggle and a number of those sufferings we listed, these sorts of things. Um, what does 2 Corinthians 1 tell you about those experiences? He, he never intended them just for you. So the question is, what are the sufferings that the Lord has led me through that I have been selfish with? Um, I've treated them as my own. I've responded to them however I wanted. And now I'm kind of a bitter person because I didn't, I didn't move toward the Lord in this. I moved away from him. Um, or regardless of my response, I have, uh, you know, there's a, a lot of people close to me that don't even know that that happened to me. The Lord showed me a great deal. And my sufferings aren't unique. Could this mean that I was, I was supposed to share that comfort with other people? I was supposed to share the instruction, the things he taught me, with, with those around me? Are there places like that that other people are starting to go through now or have been for a long time? And they're in the dark. They're having to reinvent the wheel because they've got a brother or a sister who sits on, on the other side of the pew who learned a lot about that same thing and they're just being quiet about it. We, we can be great sources of hope or, or unnecessary painful struggle. Uh, God intends us to be used in the lives of each other. So that's just, that's just a thought. Um, I need to, this. oh gosh, okay, this is bad. Um, we'll read real quick, verses 8 through 11. Uh, this is a big shift in the passage. And uh, what Tripp is going to say is Paul just essentially gives himself as an example of this. Listen to what he says about his story here, okay? 
For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the the prayers of many. And let me just list here quickly, because we're out of time, uh, what we see. I hate that we have to go. This is is great. Uh, I'll put them all up here. Uh, Be honest in describing struggles and failures. Do you you notice the the, um, transparency of Paul here? They despaired of life itself. I mean, that... He, he's, he's showing himself to have been in a very, a very low place, a difficult place. Um, always tell a completed story. Um, it needs to include the difficult situation and our struggle in the midst of it and, and how God was merciful and is helping. Uh, Tripp says, this is not a misery loves company kind of storytelling. And it's not, um, this is not disaster one-upmanship, you know, where you tell the difficulty you're going through and someone says, oh, well, gosh, let me tell you what happened to me last you know, it's, it's none of those things. And he says this, tell a story that is old enough for you to reflect on how the Lord brought comfort in the midst of it. I mean, that's gold. That's, that's, so, that's so well put. Maybe there's stories I'm in the midst of that are, it's not time for me to share them quite yet. I'm, I'm not ready to tell a whole story. If I tell it to you now, all I'm telling you is that I'm miserable and things are good. He says, tell a story old enough for you to have walked from it and to have been, been shown how God has been merciful to you. Because our goal isn't to just tell stories to each other. Our goal is to lead each other to hope in Christ. And so I've got to be careful how I tell stories to people about what's going on. Man. Um, be discerning as you tell your story. He points out, do you notice that Paul gives almost no details here? Do you think there are some gory details in this story? His, his purpose isn't to make someone be in awe of what he went through and tell every nasty detail. He told enough to make clear that this was a serious and dramatic situation. And then he went right on to what the Lord had done in it. Um, Always tell your story in a way that makes God the key actor of your story uh, so that it's not a man-centered story. And tell your story with humility. Um, Don't tell it, he says, like this. I'm a good student who learned the ultimate lesson. Remember, we are brothers in this. My goal is to just come alongside of you as your brother or you as my sister and, and uh, share what, what the Lord is doing. And he says the goal of your story should always be worship. Um, giving hope is more than convincing people that things will get better. We'll end on this. Giving hope is more than convincing people that things will get better or helping them decide what to do. Giving hope introduces them to a person. Right? Now, this is the love, Caddy. There's still no speak and do. We're not finished with this, but this is such a helpful uh, reorienting of what we, what we think we're doing with each other and what the Lord is doing with our suffering. So, um, all right, that's it. We're over. We are dismissed.